You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. Hi, and welcome to the last episode of Season 4 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Michael Farmer. I am in between jobs right now. <laughs> Starting in July, I will be an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today are two guys who, as far as I know, are not between jobs. Uh, first, Nathan Gilmore, who is an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How you doing, Nathan? I am as busy as one gets at this job. Uh, our annual assessment of the writing program starts Monday, so I'm getting just reams of paperwork together. So this podcast is going to be a real nice break for me for a little while. Thank you for taking the time to do it, Nathan. I know that you have a real job <laughs> and a family and you know things like that. I have no job and two cats. Well, and a wife. Also, to be fair, that's true. Also, also joining us is uh, David Grubbs, who is a graduate instructor of English at the University of Georgia. Are you guys done at UGA, David? Well, we are which means I'm not a graduate instructor at the University of Georgia anymore. Um, oh, you are between assistant... jobs. I didn't even think about yes. that. Yes. Well, between implies that there is a job on the other <laughs> side. Um, There's one eventually. Which... Yes, I will speak in faith and so use the preposition. Between... David is beyond jobs. <laughs> yeah. well... How Heideggerian. Well, Tallahassee Community College has ended its uh, Michael Farmer era. The University of Georgia has ended its David Grubbs era. Um, which Much was kind of detriment. interesting because yesterday I ran into three completely different students from completely different classes um, and uh, you know got got to chat to them and that, and that was and that was gratifying and considering that you know this this is the end of having worked here for a significant amount of time um, I was kind of feeling the uh, ends with a whimper not with a bang kind of uh, you know what, was, you know what you needed yesterday. David was for someone to follow you around playing the Garth Brooks song "The Dance," <laughs> or uh, that terrible Green Day song they played at my uh, graduation. Oh well, yes, oh yes. Time of your life. Well, actually, I was thinking about the Doors, the end, but you know. <laughs> a little more apocalyptic. <laughs> so when UGA <laughs> goes up in flames without you. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Well, speaking of jobs, our topic today is an unusual one. Instead of doing our normal thing where we historicize and talk about particular texts, what we're going to do is hypotheticize. Is that a word? Hypothesize. There you that's, go. That's yes. the word I'm looking for. We are going to create our ideal university. We're calling it the Christian Humanist University, CHU. Uh, before we get there, though, we need to do our normal housekeeping stuff. Have we had any listener feedback this week? Actually, I got an email from my dad in Indiana. He says that his old friend, uh, Chris Huntington, uh, who is now 
teaching in China actually listens to our podcast. So this might be the longest distance Christian humanist listener that we've got. So uh, Huntington, thank you for listening. Big uh, Tim Rhodes lived in Moscow. I don't know which one's further, but he's not there anymore. So Okay, all right. So our, our, our most distant current listener... <laughs> that we know of that we know Listeners, of if, if, if any of you are farther away than china you know mars something like that do email us let us know australia no. is, is further than china right because it's on I, I remember there was a commercial when i was a kid saying that if from georgia if you dug through the center of the world you wouldn't end up in china you would end up in australia and so if you got a fortune cookie it would probably say good day mate so, so if we have anybody in Australia, they would be the furthest away. Cause we, okay, there would, you go. We would have to tunnel all the way through the Earth to get to them. Which Since there's no way I to go around the surface of the Earth. Yeah. yeah, okay, okay. Does your dad listen to the program too, Nathan, or is it just your dad's Oh, yeah, friends? yeah, my mom and dad listen to it. Mm-hmm. My dad just started a few weeks ago. Yeah, my dad says he's going to. <laughs> I love you, Dad. <laughs> Which you may never hear. <laughs> well, in his defense, um, his computer is crap, and he's still, you know, going through AOL, so, Ooh, yeah. yeah. My dad uses yeah. AOL, too. Isn't that weird? Like, I, I didn't even know that service still existed. <laughs> well, really it's didn't. like saying, why buy a calculator? My abacus still works perfectly well. It, seem, it seems strange, but, you know, whatever. Well, especially since a laptop computer is now cheaper than most televisions. Yeah. Most good televisions, anyway. We also what got now? some. We also got some feedback from a listener, uh, Chris Wynn, who said that we got too off track on our last episode. For which I don't know. We apologize or don't apologize or thanks for listening and having an opinion, anyway, Chris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even if we don't share that I'll opinion, apologize. As, I can do that. As we, as I was saying before the show started, uh, that none of you were privy to. Uh, I, I kind of like it when we go off topic, but that's just me, and it's it's a bad quality, I guess, on the podcast and in the classroom. On our blog this week, it looks like we have our normal post. Plus, Nathan has finally posted his Brian McLaren review. It's a very good review. You should all go read it. Unfortunately, it hasn't caused the sort of controversy his last Brian McLaren review did. Are you a little disappointed, Nathan? I am a little disappointed, I'll admit. I I thought I could cause another firestorm by digging into the topic of evolution, which up until this point I've sort of treated as a don't-touch-it-on-the-blog sort of topic, but... Apparently nobody's interested in it, so. <laughs> we yawned. We have a very jaded audience, apparently. <laughs> or, or we don't have an audience. Well. well <laughs> I, mean. I refuse to believe that one. <laughs> we know you're out there, Chris Wynn. We love you, Captain Thin. Who else is out there? John. We know you're out there. We love you. Your dad's don't, don't friend in China. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we'll post something this summer, I swear. <laughs> Um, one more thing we need to take care of before we move into the episode proper is to talk about what we're doing this summer. Those of you who listened last year know that we kind of take the summer off. Uh, we are going to be doing one episode per month in the summer, and this year, because we ended in May instead of April, you've already got your May episode, which is this one. So you'll get an episode in June, 
and then you'll get an episode in July, and then we'll be back sometime at the end of August. Now, one of those episodes, I'm going to go ahead and announce it now so we can embarrass Nathan as much as possible. <laughs> one of those episodes is going to be talking about Nathan's recently published book that you can all buy on Amazon.com, oh, Nathan Gilmore, don't. with a <laughs> O-U-R, just like the, the guitarist for Pink Floyd, Gilmore with an O-U-R. Uh, so one of our episodes will be David and I attempting to read that book and attempting to ask Nathan questions about it. It is a not a popular level book. It is a scholarly text, so uh, my ability to read it will probably be limited. But uh, that's going to be one of the episodes. <laughs> I don't know what the other one's going to be. <laughs> I'm sure if you buy one and mail it to Nathan, he'll sign it for you, audience. Oh, it's true. Yeah. I didn't even <laughs> think about that. For a price. <laughs> he'll sign it for another 60 bucks. If they are paying academic publisher prices for it already, I'm not going to charge them a dime. <laughs> you give them 20 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> and, a rebate. and a written apology that you had to pay that much for it. But yeah, folks, I mean, academic publishers, I mean, they don't print a lot of copies of any given book, so they charge a lot per copy. So that's, that is part of the game in the academic world. I do apologize to anyone who is thinking of buying my book. Yes, I'm talking to you, Mom. Uh, but probably doesn't have the cash lying around to do it. There's a weird thing in academic publishing, too, which is in 10 years, if we go to half.com and type in Nathan Gilmore, that book will come up, and it'll either go for $500, or it'll go for 15 cents. Yeah. <laughs> like, after, after a decade, all academic books are either collector's items or, like, toilet paper. <laughs> so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see which is which. I'll just wait till then. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so you have that to look forward to. Uh, any 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 way that David and I make fun of Nathan about his book is born entirely out of jealousy. I promise you. Um, yeah, completely. entirely out of jealousy. <laughs> oh yeah. shoot! Yeah. Now, sure. are you going to be on the talk show circuit in general, Nathan? Are they going to have you on the Tonight Show? And... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go on uh, all of the news shows talking about how my ideas can't get a hearing in the popular media because of their bias <laughs> what their bias against milton yeah well, i think he's gonna i think he's gonna claim milton wasn't actually born in england right there you go or milton uh, didn't write milton bacon did the earl of <clears throat> oh gosh all right well let's move let's move into the christian humanist uh university and um since we're proposing a new, or at least a newish, model of university education here, we should probably begin with what's wrong with the system as it stands. So let's each talk for a few minutes about what we see as the biggest single problem with the current university model. And David, let's start with you. Tear it down. Uh, biggest single problem. You, you realize that's a really hard question, right? Well, and I, I didn't realize how bitter you were over leaving UGA, so... Burn, burn the hallowed halls down on your way out. I'm <laughs> oh, not, not, not bitter actually. More sort of a melancholy kind of pensiveness, really. I see. Anyway, um, racked my brain about this, and first thing I thought of um, is the fact that the, u the university is thought of these days as the place where you get credentials for a job. But I don't know that that's really a problem with the university model that's just kind of the place that the university seems to hold in the culture i don't know that that's entirely the university's fault um 
So, I mean, if we wanted to talk about that, we can. Uh, but in terms of the model of the way things run now, um, in thinking in thinking about universities, I go back to my reading of uh, Cardinal Newman's idea of the university, and which uh, I, I still think is a, is a, a pretty good a pretty good place to to start that conversation about what what does a Christian university look like. And he points out uh, early on when defining what a university is, a distinction between what would he would see as an academy and what he sees as the university. And an academy is a place where scholars do research to extend the, the knowledge of their field. Um, whereas he says a university is a place where teachers teach students. Um, I think, uh, well, lo looking at the University of Georgia and listening to students talk about uh, their experience of this, um, the kind of wedging together of what Newman would call a university and what Newman would call an academy, uh, kind of smushing them together the way they do at a Research One university, um, at least based on the, the experience of students I've talked to, uh, doesn't improve the experience uh, of being a student. Um, what you end up with is, uh, well, often is professors who are not invested in their teaching, they are invested in their research. And so students don't get professors who are invested in bringing their A-game into the class because their A-game is being spent uh, on that book they're desperately trying to get out or those three articles that they're revising or all of these other things that they've got to do in order to get tenure. Anyway. And that, that problem is systemic anything? and across the disciplines, right? If you look at the advice for new faculty members books, as I am doing as a new faculty member, um, mm -hmm. most Which of I them are I, I feel like I'm somehow a slacker in that respect. Yeah, maybe you're just more secure than the rest of us. But th th <laughs> those books are chiefly about how to get your publishing out, how yeah. to make time for publishing. It's not about how to be a more effective teacher, although, of course, they have books for that as well. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, my my big criticism sort of piggybacks off of what David was talking about, and I would say that the overarching framework that governs the activities that, to which David referred is a sort of invisible hand mentality uh in other words you know as long as you know the students are there trying to put minimal effort in you know to get their credentials to get their middle class jobs in the suburbs of atlanta and as long as the professors they're putting in their minimal time in the classroom so that they can get their books published and their uh research grants paid for and you know all of those sorts of things and as long as everyone is out pursuing their own privatized individual goals, uh, then the assumption is that everything will turn out right. Uh, and, you know, I think that that lack of an overarching vision that encompasses the students and the professors, uh, you know, leaves you with something, you know, exactly like what David was describing, you know, where uh, there's actually a fair bit of incentive not to pour yourself into your teaching. And in fact, as a new TA... I remember being told over and over, you know, uh, 
put the minimum possible into your teaching so that you can focus on your professional development, you know, right. To which I said, you know, grumpily to my fellow grad students upon leaving that meeting, what if my profession is to teach young people, (laughs) you know, uh, but that's, you know, that's one of the many things I enjoy about having come to Emmanuel college, uh, where teaching is what we do. Uh, but I mean, you know, that sort of mentality where, you know, it's not even that the students and the professors are antagonistic to each other. At least that would be some kind of engaged relationship. It's pretty much a, <laughs> let me do what I do. I'll let you do what you do. We'll keep getting the tax dollars in. And, you know, at the end of four years or five, in most cases, you know, uh, one group of students leaves, another one comes in, wash, rinse and repeat. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's not any surprise that ultimately that becomes unsustainable. Uh, Michael, I mean, what is your big criticism? Well, it's kind of related. It's not as closely related as yours to your, your, yours, both of yours. I, I can't, uh, I can't talk this morning. Uh, I wanted to talk about rabid over specialization, which is a bugaboo of mine. I'm sure our listeners have heard Uh me go off on before, but the, the big problem with over specialization to me is it, it shoots the university out to where it's very, very broad. So there's all, all these different, very specialized topics being covered, but there's nothing drawing them together. And this is especially true in schools that don't have a set core curriculum, but use mostly an elective system. And I know we're going to talk about that uh, in, in a few minutes, but you'll have a, you'll have a student taking science classes from teachers who don't know anything about, who don't know anything professionally about anything other than science, and usually about their very specialized level of science. You'll get them taking English classes from the same thing from a person who doesn't know about anything other than, you know, Victorian England. And, uh, and the classes will never meet in the middle. So I, I, I would say the biggest problem with the German university system that we're talking about is, uh, is specialization. And, and when, you, when you specialize that much, you can no longer create a whole human being, which is what the university used to be about, at least ostensibly. Mm-hmm. I think, I think our, our, our complaints, Michael, are actually related. I think the specialization is what happens when your faculty are devoted scholars who who are focusing so much of their time on their own on their own cutting edge research, which the cutting edge is always the narrowest part right. of the tool. And so right. if if the people teaching the classes have focused their attention on that sharp edge, what they're invested in is not the breadth of their discipline, but on their specialty. And that's what, and you know, that's when they're going to bring their A game, and uh, you know, that's, you know, odds are that's what's good, what they're going to spend their time on. Right, and moreover, I mean, one of the effects of that specialization that Michael's talking about is the sort of silo effect, to where I mean, I'll I'll, I'll just play a little game with you two, uh, Michael. Uh, can you name someone from the speech communication department at UGA? No. David, can you name someone from the religion department at UGA? Uh-uh, no. All right, so I, you know, and I, I just happen to pick two departments where I actually have friends in those departments. Also, uh, those buildings are right next to Park Hall, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you would pick, you know, any departments other than those two, I couldn't name anyone either. Darwin Smith. I mean, you can name Darwin Smith from the biology department. 
That's know, true. That's true. I know your buddies. Or Doctor Fink from journalism, the he of the epic eyebrows. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure who but Dr. at any rate, I mean, the idea is, you know, again, you know, bringing it into contrast with, you know, Emmanuel College here. You know, I mean, part of it has to do with my job description. I'm by definition interacting with all of the faculty, but I mean, I know by name almost all of the faculty here, and the ones that I don't know are only because of my own faulty memory. Mm. That's also because UGA is a school of 30,000 students and Emmanuel's oh, a school true. of 800. But there are people yeah. in the English department whose names I don't know. At UGA, yeah. yeah, it's true. I, I mean, I'm talking, yeah. you know, professors, not even graduate students. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I see them in the hall, and I've got a vague sense that probably someone takes English classes from them. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I talked to a faculty member who's been working here for almost a year and a half. I didn't know she was a faculty member. I just thought she was a like another grad student that I hadn't met yet. Yeah. Before we go on, I want to make it clear that all three of us like UGA quite a bit. I, I found that department yes. very collegial and very supportive. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, sure, sure. So, so I don't want to make it sound like we're picking on them. And if you're thinking of going to graduate school, I think all three of us would highly recommend UGA. Yeah. Oh, sure. Or at least the Renaissance Department, because that's the part that I'm familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, between the three of us, we've got most of the departments covered. Well, true enough. True enough. <laughs> so I, I, I do, I do want to make that clear that we're not just sitting here complaining about our graduate school as though it were bad. In fact, I think it's about as good as you can be using the model that we're criticizing. Right. Oh, sure, right. sure. Yeah, there, there are many excellencies here which... Uh, the, the the department I think right rises above the kind of handicaps that the system imposes on them, and so you do have uh, instructor, you do have professors who are willing to invest uh, in their students, uh, who are willing to uh, to see uh, you know graduate students and undergraduates as as priorities, uh, not not to always be sacrificed on the altar of, of research. Right, right. My point is not that they never do it. It's that they have incentive not to do it. Right. It's yes. a systemic problem. It's not a problem with individuals. Right, right. You know, it's one of those things where people are often better than the systems in which they reside. Yes. Well, now that we've burned the German university model to the ground, <laughs> we need to start building building ours back up and before we do it we have to talk teleology uh we don't have to come up with an actual mission statement here because we're not trying to attract donors because we're not actually going to build this university but we do need to have a general idea of why we're opening this hypothetical christian humanist university do you guys have any suggestions nathan uh yeah i mean one of the things that i am very very impressed with historically is the idea of the liberal arts and you know one of the things that I sort of discovered as I started digging deeper into the history of this is that originally liberal arts was did not refer to those arts which make one free, but those arts that a free person should possess. And, you know, one of the things about the university as a concept is it's a hierarchical concept. So, I mean, we I think we should be unapologetic about the fact that we are bringing in, shaping, educating uh, people who are going to have influence in their spheres. Now, I don't mean that every person who comes to the Christian Humanist University is going to be a a senator, a bishop, a general, or you know, someone of grand public significance. But or I do all think, three. That, 
or all three, you know, as the case may be. The Caesars uh, of the new the new millennium. <laughs> but I do think that we ought to have at the core of what we're doing an idea that the people who come to us, the people whom we teach, will turn around and serve a neighborhood, a congregation, an organization. Uh, they ought to be those people who are bringing the gifts of intellect to bear on human community. Mm. And since I'm slowing down terribly at this point, David, you want to pick up the speed for me? <laughs> well, uh, uh, just just kind of to you know try to cock it in a slightly different direction. Um, I'm embracing the fact that Christian Humanist University is a utopia. Which is, you know, simultaneously us trying to construct an ideal place that is also an imaginary place that can never exist. <laughs> um, so why is it even useful? Well, because the the questions that a fantasy asks, the what if questions, help bring clarity to our analysis of the systems that are here. What if can clarify the question what is, right. and so which uh, is the point of Plato's yeah. Republic, by the way. Yes. And the point of this. Yes. It's the sense in which being an idealist is helpful and not pie-eyed. Yeah. Right, right. You're an idealist. Being an idealist is good so long as you recognize that your ideal is not going to happen. You just want to get close to it. Yeah. Yes. Also, potential employers don't think from this episode that I will hate your college. Just saying. <laughs> also, somebody hire David Grubbs. Yes, yeah, that please. Too. Yes. David, did you have a uh, teleology for our for our university? No, not really. I dropped the ball there. <laughs> I just talked about fantasy. Michael, what do you think? I, I, I wanted to get back to that notion I, I mentioned in passing earlier about uh, about educating the whole person that it's 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 this this is more than about learning a trade. It's it's more than about being educated in small areas. Uh, you should uh, you should come out of a university knowing a good bit about an awful lot instead of a lot about a very little or a little about a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm not going to say you should know everything about everything because that's not actually possible, but you should... Right. Yeah, the, the high, high standards on, on the amount of stuff you should know about. Plus, you should come out being a better person than you went in, which uh, I'm mm. not sure most people do anymore. Well, well, my problem is not necessarily that, you know... They don't come out as better people because, I mean, that assumes that we already know what constitutes a good person. My my two big problems are, one, that people don't come out with any better ideas of what constitutes a good human life. Right. And two, that they don't come out any more interesting than what they came in as. <laughs> they do have more stories about that time they were so drunk. Isn't that what yeah. I just said? Oh, okay, yeah. That is, that is what you just said. <laughs> well, let's start building it up. Uh, given given what we had to say about specialization and research and the rest of it, um, do we feel comfortable offering a variety of majors at CHU? Or would we better serve our students by having just a straight great books curriculum the way St. John's College or the Tory Honors Institute, places like that do? David? Mm. Uh, to me, the, the problem... I mean, specialization is is a problem because it's it's diversity without a centering or unifying principle, right? Um, one of the things I like about uh, the the work of 
This is actually a professor at, at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, a fellow by the name of Vern Poitras, who has taken this idea that God is transcendent and imminent, and therefore we should try in all of our pursuits of knowledge, which, you know, if, if all truth derives from God, then we should be looking for both transcendent and imminent truth. Um, so that we do have specialization because God being imminent and also God being a trinity is diverse and particular. But at the same time, because God is transcendent and also God is unified, uh, there sh should be some way in which these particularities, um, these imminent realities, these specializations, uh, exist in relationship to each other. And uh, I think Poitras has done a good job. He, he wrote a book about science. Uh, he's written a book about uh, linguistics and language arts, um, kind of taking this approach. Um, practically, I don't know that I would get rid of majors. What I would like to do is have some kind of practical unifying, um, well, at least educationally transcendent element, maybe a course that's taken every semester, the job of which is to put every other class they're taking in context. Let's let's or, put that on hold. Let's put that on hold yeah. for just a second, David, and get back to that sure. that idea when we talk about core curriculum. Yeah, okay. because I, I think you're onto something, but I want to put that in its proper place. Sure. So or you vote you vote majors, but unifying a core curriculum. Yeah, I, I I vote majors, but we need we need a unifying principle in there. All Nathan. Right. This is actually the question that I racked my brain hardest on because on the one hand, the old the old model of pure core curriculum, you know, just the classics, I mean, really comes out of an era where people were going to university at age 14, 15, 16. Uh, and, you know, really what we think of as majors, they called law school, medical school, and seminary. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I also know that patterns of family sociology moving the way they're moving right now, most people are going to graduate school anyway. So, I mean, mm -hmm. one of the questions I, I, I think that, you know, a, a university would have to ask itself is, uh, do we approve of those trends? You know, do we approve of the fact that, you know, an increasing segment of the educated population is waiting until their late 20s, early 30s to start families, have children, those sorts of things? Because... If we make it a straight core curriculum, we are basically making necessary the pursuit of grad school. If mm. we keep majors, we are saying that there's a possibility out there that you could start a family at 22 instead of 29. Uh, so, I mean, this is one of those things, you know, I, I was really racking my brains. And ultimately, I think that, you know, the idea of majors, which are basically miniature grad school curricula, you know, that's how Charles Eliot imagined it at Harvard when he invented the college major, uh, it was a miniature PhD. Uh, I think that ultimately it is good for those very social reasons I was talking about. I think that high school uh, really is correcting, if it's done right, it's correcting the post-literate character of society that we live in. Mm -hmm. So college, therefore, can serve as a kind of professional school to some extent. Now, I will agree with David that there needs to be a core curriculum going on there because there's not the grammar school curriculum that would have preceded the medieval university. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I think that 
you know, that corrective function can go alongside professional training. So, I mean, ultimately, I, I, I do have to vote for majors simply because I am uneasy about telling all of our CHU students that you need to be in school until you're 28. Yeah. We took that path, and we know. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, you know I, I had my, I mean, I guess Mary, you know, really had. But, uh, you know, I became a father at, you know, very late in my 27th year. Uh, and among our friends at UGA, I'm one of the y- young parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I so. mean, well, you notice neither David nor I has children. I, I mean, and I'm 29. Yeah. David, you're what, 32? 33. 33. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, sit here and, you know, judge anyone who doesn't have kids in their 20s. I'm not about judging people on podcasts, farmer. But, uh, you know, I, I will say that, you know, that pattern, that systemic pattern makes me uneasy. I, I vote majors. Yeah, yeah. I vote majors, too, because I don't think you're going to get very many people going into the sciences or math or engineering if all you have is a great books curriculum. And yeah, I think true. the sciences in particular are a place we need people who have a classic liberal education. And so if uh-huh. you're going if you're going to attract people for that for that avenue you're going to have to have majors at the end. Mm-hmm. So my 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 reasoning is also largely practical. Mm-hmm. Well mm-hmm. good, that means we don't have to fight about that, but now we get to fight yeah. about what the core <laughs> curriculum is going to look like. Um and and this is a perennial difficulty universities run into when they have separate majors what 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 classes should everyone have to take and people who are interested in that question i recommend a book by louis menand called uh the marketplace of ideas where he he really uh he really goes into the history of core curriculum and why that debate is so sticky and so unpleasant (laughs) so what core curriculum should the christian humanist university require are we just instituting a simple four-year great books program where everybody has to take a class or two every semester do we require science and math classes of all our students Do, do we try to integrate those somehow into a larger great books program these are big questions and nathan i'm going to let you start us off All right. Well, I'll go ahead and do that, Michael. Uh, I think that really Milligan, because it shaped me so positively, remains sort of my model for my ideal core curriculum. And honestly, what I'm inclined to do is take what Milligan does and go further. What Milligan College in Johnson City, Tennessee does is they roll together the intro to literature, intro to world history, intro to American history, intro to philosophy, intro to theology, intro to art history, all of those classes roll together into one gigantic 16-hour core class that you take over the course of your first four semesters at Milligan, uh, simply called Humanities. And what's nice about Humanities is you are learning about classical Athens in all of those facets at once. You're learning about the Roman Empire and early Christianity in all of those facets at once. You're learning about the Scientific Revolution and the Protestant Reformation Uh, and the rise of symphonic music, and the invention of opera, and Caravaggio, whatever the heck you want to call him, uh, all at the same time, all right? So, you know, I think that what would be really, really cool for a core curriculum is to extend that from four semesters to eight semesters, and roll in as well the history of mathematics, the history of the physical sciences, uh, all those sorts of things, and actually dig into those concepts in the order that human civilization got to those concepts. In other words, make the core curriculum a 
microcosm of the intellectual history of the West. Now, I, I think that there's a place as well for non-Western studies. Uh, I do think, though, that if you start to try to incorporate the Chinese and the sub-Saharan African and the uh, East Asian into all that, you know, into that while you're trying to do Western civilization too, it might be too much for a core curriculum. I think that might be something that overextends even a four-year core curriculum. I would think so. Well, well, the the name of the university anchors us in a tradition, right? Oh, sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, I I think we would be justified in not including and saying that, uh, you know, we're Christian Humanists University, not Chinese Confucian University. Right. Although, to be fair, I mean, there was a sort of golden age of Christianity in China somewhere in the, you know, 8th roughly to 13th centuries. So, you know, by including China, we wouldn't be going outside of Christianity necessarily, but we would be going into a sort of lost era. Right. And likewise, yeah. I mean, you know, if you think yeah, about, I think everything that we know of that that's known about that period, though, that would be, um, you know, something you could talk to undergraduates about, uh-huh. could be exhausted like in a class. Period. Ah, <laughs> uh, possibly, possibly, and and you know, the only reason I bring that up is because when I was a seminarian, I helped a church history professor edit a book on non-Western church history. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I've I've become familiar with some of the, I guess, blind spots in the traditional church history curriculum. Right. So, well, and, also, and North I mean, Africa you know, would certainly be representing. Oh, sure. And sub-Saharan, because, of course, you know, Ethiopia is the longest-running Christian kingdom in world history. Mm-hmm. True that. So, I mean, of course, the global south is where Christianity's at these days. Right, right. Yeah. But anyway, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm on a rabbit trail here. Uh, core curriculum. What do you guys think about it? <laughs> I wonder if the the method you've described for teaching math and science is is adequate because what okay. you're what you're really teaching is the philosophy and history of math and science instead of teaching them. So so you could learn all about how Euclid formulated his laws without ever learning the how to actually do algebra or, or do trigonometry. Mm-hmm. So I would suggest adding to the algebra would be middle ages. Yeah, excuse me. <laughs> I would, I, yeah, of course it would cause of the, uh, the, the, uh, Arabic name right, of it. Right. But the, <laughs> see, see, obviously I didn't take enough math classes, but I would suggest adding to that a couple of math classes and a couple of lab science classes, stuff that's hands on and not great books based stuff. That's, that's more mm-hmm. current. Oh, sure, sure. I, I, yeah, I wouldn't want to exclude lab classes from it. What I'm saying is it wouldn't have to be a uniform motion through time. In other words, when you get to the Saracen Middle Ages, you could slow down a bit and learn algebra and take the time it takes to learn algebra. Okay. When you get to the 17th century, you can slow down and learn Leibnizian calculus. You know, when you get to the... Well, Actually, so I probably could slow down a lot. No, no matter how, how <laughs> well, much no, I slow I mean, down. I, but I'm, I really do mean it. I mean, I think that that would make the curriculum more unified, more intelligible. Uh, and, I mean, you wouldn't get this idea as much, I don't think, I hope, uh, that, you know, math people would be saying, you know, all of this history and literature stuff doesn't apply to me. Right. Mm-hmm. No, that, that makes a good deal of sense now that you've clarified that. Right. 
And I mean, I, you know, I took Leibnizian calculus when I was 17 and 18 years old as a high school senior. So, I mean, I know it's doable. <laughs> Leibniz right. is one of those rare guys who uh, is equally known in the math and philosophical worlds. Right, right. And of course, I didn't know it was Leibnizian calculus, and that's part of the problem, right? You know, yeah. I didn't realize that what I was learning was in direct competition in the 16th, 17th century, pardon me, with Newtonian calculus, and that ultimately Leibnizian calculus turned out to be more adequate to the problems it was trying to solve. And you also didn't know that in some way Leibnizian calculus is connected to, you know, the best of all possible worlds, that there, there right, is a, right. there's a, a way in which his mathematics and his philosophy are inseparable. Sure. Mm. Of course, nobody learns about that. Or very few I people. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I just want to tag along with this. Uh, I, I, th I think this is great because, especially because this uh, math to to a certain abstract degree, but science, especially to a very popular degree, is posited these days and has been, you know, for the last hundred years, as the context in which other things are meaningful. Right. Um, right. Including right. the humanities, and this is attempting. This is basically showing that um, that not only historically but also philosophically, that's that's inaccurate. Um, you know, we got we got the sciences, particularly the the, the empirical and experimental sciences, both the uh, you know that that epistemology from Locke and that uh, sort of experimental approach from Bacon. Uh, both of the, both the epistemology and the 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 system of science were constructed by men who were very self consciously saying human beings have limits, mm -hmm. and we're going to create systems that stay within those those uh, those empirical experiential uh, sensory limits. To then you know hundreds of years later. Hundreds of years later, say that well, if if it cannot be contained within science, it's irrelevant. Uh, ignores the fact that the people who laid the groundwork for it were and were already saying the world is bigger than science, but science is um, is something that 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 human beings can do more adequately, given their uh, their their reasoning faculties and their sensory faculties. Right. How would these classes be taught? Uh, and here's where I am a radical, I'll admit, but I think that, you know, part of the mission of a Christian humanist university would be to re-educate and de-educate people who came out of big university graduate schools and mm. turn them back into generalists. So in other words, you know, I mean, uh, and I'm, I'm deriving this model, you know, partly from Milligan and partly from St. John's. Uh, but I mean, I think that someone trained in Renaissance English literature should be teaching the philosophy and the chemistry and all those sorts of things in the curriculum. In other words, I think that, you know, the professor should be modeling this well-rounded humanistic vision of education. Now I think that, and again, you know, this might be where I'm being, you know, idealistic in the modern pejorative sense, but I think that scholars incentivized to do so could really do that and have you know a sort of specialized guild life on the side as well 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's impossible. Well, presumably we'd be teaching majors courses as well. Right, right. Right. I like and the way the CWC does their courses where you have the giant lectures and then you break into small groups. Uh-huh. I, I think that's a good model for, for this sort of core curriculum in general. I mean, sort I don't of the know the Oxfordy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know the specifics of how they do that, but that that sounds like a good model where you would have. Yeah. I wouldn't have to lecture on everything. I would lecture once every two or three weeks. Right. That's, and that's then that's leave how a small humanities program works as well. Mm. So that in the small groups, every professor has to discuss everything, but in the big lecture hall, the specialist frames things up for discussion. And and that 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 strikes me as eminently reasonable. I think that makes a lot of sense. We dig it. All right. Well, we've got Christian right in the name of our school, so it's important that we deal with that now. Uh, <laughs> what spiritual activities are we going to require of our students? Are we going to have required chapels, optional chap- uh, chapels, required church attendance, community service? What sorts of uh, extra curricular spiritual activities are we going to have? Uh, and Nathan, let's start with you again. All right, thank you. I mean, the first thing I would want to do is negate some things rather than posit things. And the first thing I would want to do is say that on our campus, there will be no religious activities on Sunday morning. On our campus, there will be no religious activities on Wednesday evening. Awesome. Uh, The reason for that is, you know, I want for every Christian college to be integrated with local multi-generational, pardon me, congregations i don't want us to be an 18 to 22 year old silo Amen. Um, it is too easy to go to the ch- uh, the uh campus church on sunday mornings too easy absolutely and, and that's one of the things that as far as i know is still a standing rule at milligan college and i really do appreciate that about milligan um now as far as a chapel service uh i do think that that is valuable that said i think that in the spirit of Christian hospitality, where we want to, in the tradition of the old monasteries, to welcome people in uh, who are not themselves confessors, uh, I think that there should be some sort of option for people who prefer not to be in a Christian worship setting. That'll do a couple things. First of all, it'll give them an option to do some sort of community service or some, some other sort of documented personal development activities, all right? Uh, And also, it would free up those who organize and produce, for lack of a better word, the chapel services to do a genuinely Christian chapel service. So in other words, they could actually say, we are inviting you to be here, uh, and you have the option not to be here. You can do other things. Uh, But since you are here, let's actually be Christian here together. Uh, now I, I realize that that, you know, probably opens up all kinds of loopholes. That's one of those things that would take, uh, you know, some practical reason, uh, some mm. sophrosune to bring some Ar- Aristotelian Greek into it. Uh, but I think as a starting point, that is ultimately better than the required everyone must be in the room chapel service, uh, which, you know, in my experience at Milligan and at Emmanuel College, uh, does the most work in inviting creative ways to avoid being there. Right. <laughs> Man, I once paid $300 in chapel funds at Tacoma Falls College. Wow. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, 
<laughs> okay. I know. Yeah, I, I, I must have funded their spiritual emphasis week that year. <laughs> <laughs> Glad well, I mean, my part. I, when I was at Milligan, you know, this was back in the days before uh, commonly available electronic card scanners like they have at Emmanuel now. But Slash I mean, and dash. Yeah, for us it was punch and run. <laughs> I wouldn't nice. even bother to slash and dash. Although I, I find that so distasteful and dishonest that I, I wouldn't have done that. I would just take the penalty because I am a, <laughs> I, I don't know, a saint, I guess. Or an existentialist, <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> That's right. I, I couldn't have lived with the crushing guilt. <laughs> I'm going to suggest instead of making chapel mandatory, you have optional chapel once or twice a week and then have a mandatory small group Bible study type situation, which is something hmm. Tacoa Falls did, and uh, that that I really uh-huh. I really dug. It was led by professors. You chose them. You didn't have to go to them. You could have gone to a chapel service instead. Almost everybody chose to go to the small group. Um, huh. So I, I I like that idea better. It's it's a a little less a, a little less corporate, a little more um, adaptable to what people mm-hmm. in the group need. Um, so I, I would suggest we do that once a week instead of instead of a mandatory chapel. Yeah. Okay. But David, one of the difficulties that I had when I was uh, when I was going to Bible college is they had uh, they had mandatory chapel. Uh, they had it uh, four days a week. Woo! That's what TFC had. And, uh, That's how and, I got three hundred dollars of funds. Yeah. <laughs> And chapel was run uh, like a church service. And what that did in my own life was that it burned me out on going to church. Yes. Um, I actually, uh, you know, I would sleep late, not go to Sunday school, show up at church a little late and find, you know, find some reason that, you know, I didn't go into service. Like, oh, hey, buddy, I haven't seen in a long time who's going to another college let's just stand out in the hall and catch up okay um you know because i had already been to church four times that week oh you know and it it, it, it was it was really uh it it, it was irksome it killed it killed my joy for the body of christ that i was actually in um so kind of kind of reflecting on that um I do think that something needs to happen, but I think something closer to what you suggested, Michael, might be better because I really I, – I don't want to establish something in the university community that could that could seem to replace what goes on at church even if nothing is happening on Sunday morning, as you say, Nathan. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I don't want students to have to, – to get the impression – that in some way going to this Christian college replaces the community of local believers, um, and and even if it's just killing the love, killing the love for them, uh, the the love of it, uh, you know, I, I I do I do still believe in communal worship and things like that, but you know, I also believe that the people who are actually in that in the chapel service are human beings. And uh, human beings are susceptible to things like constant repetition, killing the specialness of the occasion. Um, things like that. While we're on the but subject, I, I am going to suggest that to the degree we do have chapel services, 
we structure those sermons and lectures and messages or whatever you want to call them to the people we hope our students will become and not to the people they were two years before they graduated high school. To wit, yeah, we no, should have sermons that. for adults who, uh, who have studied things and know things and not object lessons for children. Right. And actually, no, Michael, I, I kind of like your messages. idea of, of the sort of decentralized... You know, we don't even have to call it a chapel service, but the decentralized spiritual life of the campus. I mean, that strikes me as something to where, you know, people could get out of the mentality of this is something that the whole campus has to do, so I'm going to sit here and send text messages. You know, right. it could be something more geared to what I'm interested in doing, but, you know, it's not necessarily my major. I like that it's the professors who lead it. Yeah, yes. yeah. And there was somebody um, for everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it could also work, too, with your, uh, your idea, Nathan, about, um, about kind of integrating community service in with chapel. You could uh -huh. have small groups that are more, sort, all, that are more service oriented right. and others that are more um, kind of digging into scripture oriented, others that are more, you know, conversation about, you know, spiritual topic. Uh -huh. you know, all of those kinds of things and, could and be And I could even see, I mean, maybe once a month, you know, having a full student body assembly. Yes. That wouldn't necessarily mm -hmm. be analogous to a church service like David was talking about, but something more along the lines of a public lecture or an address from the college president or something like that to where, mm -hmm. you know, it would be it would still maintain a sense that the university is a singular community rather than yeah. that invisible hand that I was talking about earlier. Right. Uh, that unified but, transcendent element. <laughs> right. But in other words, you know, it wouldn't be the burnout experience that David was talking about. And then the campus chaplain would have other duties, I suppose. Or we, I guess maybe we wouldn't have a campus chaplain. Right. Maybe a priesthood of all professors. <laughs> I don't think that's a bad idea. Um, I, I mean, if 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 the goal of the of of this university, as Michael has said, is bringing whole people, what the, the faculty need to be whole people before the students. Yeah. And part of that is part of being a a whole, well-rounded person is not saying to a person in need, "That's not my job." That's right. right. Plus, the best chapel lectures are almost always ones done by professors. Oh, sure, mm -hmm. sure. Almost always. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, while we're talking about spiritual education, let's make another decision. What sorts of students do we allow into the Christian Humanist University? And wh what I'm asking, I suppose, is what are students should have to sign a faith statement, and then how should they have to perform academically to get in? Mm. Because Christian colleges tend to be a little more open admission than a lot of schools. David, let's start with you. Well... We're, it's still a university, and I'm not. I'm not starting off with the theory that university should be for everyone. Amen. You know, you know I, I. I think that. You know, th there should be something that differentiates it from the the, the universal re required schooling, of of primary and uh, primary, middle, and and uh, sort of you know high school, right? Um. So being completely open, just whoever wants to come in, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that academically. 
Well, in the end, you're not doing those people any favors anyway, because you're just taking their money for them to flunk out after a semester. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of like driving, you know, I mean, to, to a certain degree, um, you know, most people are going to be capable of a level of driving that they can do, you know, kind of around town and so forth. But that doesn't mean that we need to democratize NASCAR. <laughs> right. Anyway, um, I don't know about SAT and ACT. Everybody always complains about those. Um, high school grades are so inflated these days very often. Um, so I'm not sure. Um, a really, really awesome admissions essay. <laughs> you know, um, so something like something something like that. Um, I'm 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 not real good at thinking about thinking about those kinds of things. But I think, I mean, we we do have to have some way of determining that they can that they can do the work that they're not just going to show up and 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 just fail because that's sad. Right. Yeah. It's um, unethical to let those students into college. Yeah. Because you are just taking their money. I mean, do, do you guys have any? I mean, any? Do you have any more specific thoughts about that, Nathan or or Michael? Yeah. I mean, I mean to, to start out on the you know the academic qualification question, then I do want to talk about the faith statement. I think that. Yeah, I want to turn to that, but let's get the first one done. Yeah. I yeah. I mean, I I think that you know some sort of admission portfolio that is actually assessed by the professors on the ground, so to speak, uh, would ultimately be better in my mind than high school grades or SAT scores. Uh, again, I mean, I realize all of these suggestions I'm making, the priesthood of all professors and the assessment of incoming students by the faculty means that, you know, you're not going to be able to get four comp classes out of every English professor every semester and still, you know, keep this thing afloat. But again, we are talking about an ideal, something towards which we strive. So, I mean, I think that as an ideal, uh, something to where, again, I'd, I'm, I'm, I'm subsuming a whole lot of stuff into the faculty, uh, which is probably going to anger, you know, student life and admissions type people. But it strikes me that, you know, integrating all of those things into the same body of people would ultimately make for a more integrated experience. So, in other words, have the faculty look at admissions materials. Have the mm. faculty design the admission materials that students have to complete. Have the faculty be the campus pastors. You know, um, in my mind, you know, it's it's sort of that medieval idea of the collegium. You know, the mm. those who read together being the core of the university. So, you know, on that score, I would say, you know, I'd be more interested in a written portfolio. Uh, of documents designed by the faculty uh, and have students write them specifically for admission into the college. In other words, they have to do some writing before they ever show up in the dormitory. That that sounds that sounds more productive than a standardized test to mm-hmm. me. Even though I rule a standardized test. Now, can I turn to the face? I, I do too, but that oh, go ahead. reflects almost nothing about me. You know, it got me into UGA, I, I, I am sure, so I'm not going to yeah. bag on standardized testing. Yeah, <laughs> Nathan, uh, you want to you want to turn to? I can tell you're chomping at the bit to turn to the. Uh, faith I really, I'm, I'm I'm champing at the bit actually, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> as long as we're being English teachers here, um, 
you know, I think that the statement of faith is a very different question for students and for faculty. I think that for faculty, it's entirely appropriate. Uh, I happen to like Emmanuel College's uh, stance on statements of faith, namely that applicants to be faculty members here write our own statements of faith, which is reviewed by the department to which you're replying. And I mean, that just strikes me as so intelligent because, you know, it's not that there is this top down bullet point list of things you have to agree to, but instead I have to say who Christ has made me. And then, you know, the folks with whom I'm going to be working have to look at that and say, yeah, we can basically get on board with working with this person. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the, the college president also is privy to my statement of faith and all that too. But, you know, in my mind, the composition aspect of it, in other words, you tell me to what Christ has called you and I'll tell you what I think of that rather than saying, you know, here's the, here's the checklist you have to check off or pretend to believe so that you can come join us. Um, now for students, on the other hand, again, I am very interested in a sort of monastic hospitality. In other words, uh, I have taught students here at Emmanuel College who are not Christian, uh, and frankly, I am glad that they are in my class because I get to show them what it looks like to be a Christian intellectual. And, you know, that becomes not necessarily, you know, evangelistic in the sense of I'm confronting them in class and saying, if you die tomorrow, do you know where you're going to go? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I am saying, you know, there is a certain beauty and there is a certain goodness and there is a certain wholeness to living as a an educated christian adult human being and here it is on display for you you can decide what you'd like to do with that so i would say no statement of faith from the students although they should sign you know something that says i realize i'm getting into a christian liberal arts environment uh yeah. but you know i think that it's entirely appropriate for faculty members to write their own statements of faith to be submitted to the faculty for review i'm with you on the students i uh i prefer a top down i, I don't mind faculty writing their own statements of faith but i uh -huh. i prefer some sort of top down doctrinal statement right, although i would like it to be as broad as possible and i i would say just make it the apostles creed okay so, so, I mean, well, why do you prefer it that way because i'm interested in your reasons well what I, what I don't want is is every department deciding for themselves because uh, oh okay yeah that I agree with go ahead yeah. sorry I cut yeah you off. so go ahead. so if if what you mean is there's some sort of governing body some sort of uh, doctrinal governing body in the college that makes that decision I could get on board with it I I think it just simplifies things to have a top down statement although I I had to write doctrinal statements for several schools that nevertheless had one and uh, I I enjoyed doing that I appreciated being able to do that mm -hmm. uh -huh. but I, i'm not well, sure it's an either or well it, it i would just prefer the, the individual departments yeah. not to be able to make that decision right yeah and own. that's not what i meant to imply and i do apologize i realize that's what right. it came across as i i think also starting off michael uh with with something written down even if it's broad allows what the what the uh the, the faculty applying for that position um it allows what they produce as a personal confession to be in conversation with, with what's there. Right. Um, and and I think and I think that's that's useful because otherwise, what conversation is the person looking at this application, looking at this confession? I mean, 
are are they are they looking at the confession in terms of how it fits with their confession? All right. I mean, you know, there there has to be some sense of uh, there have to be some stripes on the ground so that the game is meaningful. <laughs> you know, so going back to the orthodoxy episode, um, you know, we we can we can argue about how broad those stripes are, but. I th- I think you need to have something written down so that when someone shows up and says, you know, I'm a Christian, and by that I mean I think that Christian that that Christ that uh, Christ and Krishna are the same person, and so by Christian I mean Hindu. Which actually happened at Emmanuel, didn't it, Nathan? Yeah, we had someone apply for the English department that said, uh, you know, well, first of all, just didn't send in a statement of faith. So, you know, my department chair emailed back and said, uh, we kind of need a statement of faith from you. And the person emailed back and said, well, actually I'm not a Christian believer. I'm a Hindu, but I, uh, I appreciate evangelicalism. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And that's not, that's not unique to a manual either. A lot of, a lot of people apply to a lot of Christian colleges without being able to sign that faith statement because they don't think it's important. Sure. And you know, my department chair emailed back and said, you know, well, we thank you for your interest, but we are in, evangelical christian college and our faculty have to be evangelical christians <laughs> right i i think but, one thing we can agree on on in terms of the christian humanist university statement of faith for faculty is what we don't want to do is exclude catholic believers or orthodox believers we, we don't want to make it oh, sure, specifically sure. an evangelical school we, we would we would like right. something more ecumenical Mm-hmm. Which is why I, I think the Apostles' that. Creed is a, is a great guideline, because that's something every Christian church that is a Christian church believes, whether they say it on Sunday morning or not. Mm. All right, well, we're all uh, getting our PhDs at the University of Georgia, as we mentioned. Um, in my more cynical moments, I am apt to think of UGA as a football team covered in a veneer of academic coursework. So the question <laughs> is, are we going to have sports at CHUs, and uh, what yes buts are you going to add to that? Well, let's start with you, Nathan, because I know you're a big UGA football fan. Oh, absolutely. Now, the first thing I'll say is we should definitely have athletic teams. We should definitely give scholarships for athletes. Uh, I am an unabashed supporter of college baseball, college volleyball, college softball, college basketball, all of these sorts of things. I think that these are intelligible human practices of sufficient complexity that they improve the capability of those participating to serve human community. So, See our sports episode. Yes, yes. That's right. <laughs> now, I will say that, you know, one of the issues that comes up at a small college, and, you know, I've been at Emanuel a couple of years now, so I'll, get, I'll, I'll backtrack to UGA here in a bit, is a culture of tension at the very least between the coaches and the professors and you know that's one of those things where again uh, the places where you have the least problem in that respect are places here at Emmanuel College where the coach is a professor you know uh, <laughs> our well our men's and women's tennis coach is also a full professor of music you know our um, trying to think of other examples here um, you know our yeah, basketball, it's not the case. Baseball, it's not the case. That might be the only example, and that might be why the tennis team is regarded around campus as the athletes you want to have in your class. That's until you start coaching uh, fencing, right, Nathan? Well, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, until they approve the uh, pointy poison tip swords 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I actually proposed a Hamlet-style fencing team, and so far uh, the administration hasn't approved. Uh, You're waiting to hear back. But, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think that one of the things about college athletics is that in a co- small college setting, it's often a place for people to flee when they turn 18 and they can't play high school sports anymore. Uh, but they want to just be on the field for a few more years. And I think that one of the things that has to be absolutely clear at Christian Humanist University is that the players are also students and first and foremost students. So, you know, we we definitely applaud and approve and grant scholarships for baseball, basketball, uh, poison tip fencing, and all sorts of other things. But uh, <laughs> the expectation is that they are full members of the community in the classroom and on the field. So now, no special as as treatment. Model, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I'd, I'd say special treatment because these are folks who are putting in sometimes 30 hours a week beyond what other students are doing. But the special treatment comes in the form of scholarship money. You know, where other students work at the cafeteria, these students are working on the baseball field. Gotcha. So, I mean, you know... In other respects, you know, the same special treatment for students who are working at the local shopping mall as for students who are working as the shortstop for Christian Humanist University. Okay. Now, as far as the UGA model, I mean, the the main corruption that I see going there is that there you're not talking about scholarship athletes who are, you know, brought in to form a more complete human being you're talking about minor leagues for the nba and the nfl uh and if you don't believe me take a look at how much a high school football coach gets paid how much a ncaa big time football coach gets paid how much an nfl football coach gets paid tell me which two of those are closer together Mm. um i mean it's professional sports the players don't get paid because of antiquated Victorian rules about quote unquote amateur sports. Uh, but I mean, you know, I've said for a long time that, you know, the NFL and the NBA ought to just form their own minor leagues like the, like major league baseball has. I don't think it's ever going to happen because the culture of the American Southeast is too heavily wrapped up in its college football. Um, but I think that that's something that, you know, if we're starting our own idealized university, we can, Stay the heck away from. Anything to add, David? Um, well, Nathan can correct me on this. Uh, but what's the uh, that essay that Milton wrote uh, where he lays out his his imagined his imagined Christian humanist gentleman's boarding school? Uh, the, it, uh, usually, it's just labeled on education. It's got a much longer 17th century style title that I've forgotten. Well, that's easy enough. Uh, <laughs> if I remember correctly, um, it wasn't all just intellectual pursuits. There was there oh, were also, mine. yeah, th- there were all, everyone played a sport. Everyone played multiple sports. Everyone played multiple sports. Yeah, fencing, boxing, um, wrestling. Yeah, but you know because he's you know because that's that's you know his goal is to create a kind of whole person. Why can't we do something like that? Why can't you know where where everyone is in some way active in that way? I mean, we're not trying to make sort of Cartesian brains in jars. Right? Somebody would sue you. That's why. Well, wah. 
Right. Although, again, you know, there are actual real world models for this. You know, for instance, at West Point, everyone is on an athletic team. You know, I, I mean, if, if that's what it is going into it, I mean, I, I would say the same thing to, you know, to the, you know, the hypothetical student who uh, who does not confess Christ, but still wants to go to CHU. Well, you signed up for this. It was in the pamphlet. <laughs> right. Um, you know, right. if, if and, we're, we're going to make then the people, the that includes of, bodies, right? Yeah. And then the question of physical disability comes in. But, David, I don't think that that rules out what you're talking about. I think that. No, I, I don't think some, it does. Some practical wisdom, some, you know, some software sune would, you know, go into that. But I think it's not by any means out of reach. Right. And I, and I think there is, you know, a way in which, um, and, and, and you see it with athletes. And it's such a, I mean, it, it seems like such a cliche, but I think that it also is real. The idea of playing as a team, build, building a sense of, of, uh, of team spirit that can be transposed into other avenues of life. Oh, sure, I never sure. played team sports. I'm not a very good team player. <laughs> Those things might be connected. You don't have to tell us, David. Well, that's true. Um, you know, I, I, w- I was the guy during group work who just said, you know, forget all you guys. I'll do it all myself. I don't care yeah. because I wanted to do it my way. I hate yeah. group work. And David, actually, now that I've had a couple minutes to think, I, you know, I think that your idea, if we made a borderline required or even required system of intramural sports, that might even be more, even more conducive to what we're after than mandatory intercollegiate sports. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and it also goes, goes back to kind of, kind of the idea of instead of, you know, constant all in everybody all in one place chapels kind of smaller smaller groups that kind right. of that kind of micro level cohesiveness that i think builds macro level cohesiveness um mm-hmm. as well and you know this this is an, this is another way that can be done also and and i'll i'll, I'll just be honest here um when i was uh, an undergraduate I didn't. They, we had some sports teams at my college. I did not always have a great deal of appreciation for what some of the athletes at my school brought to the school. Yeah, I wasn't. I didn't go to the games. Um, but one semester, you had to take a PE class, and I took volleyball, and I played. You know, played volleyball. And it was on a team with guys who were good at it, guys who were athletes. And we won a lot. And it wasn't because <laughs> of me, though I did have a decent overhand serve. Um, I appreciated those guys then. I mean, and it that hung around after the class was over. That hung around after the game was over. Um, I had a greater appreciation for people whose whose excellencies were different than mine, whose talents lay in different areas, because I had to participate with them in the arena in which their strength lay. Right. Anyway, that, I, I know that was good for me. 
Well, we have covered a great deal of ground today and taken a great deal of time to cover it, but we can't possibly cover everything. So let's each talk briefly about an important topic related to our hypothetical university here in the last few minutes of our season. David, uh, we'll start with you. Well, I'd like to talk about um, the the hypothetical space in which our hypothetical college exists. Um the the idea of, of of ideal an ideal campus. Am I taking anyone else's? No. Keep rolling. Okay, sweet deal. Um, you know the first kind of argument is city versus is the whole city versus country thing, <laughs> which is your thing. Yes, which is which is my <laughs> thing. But uh, having having been to both, having been in, in you know attended colleges that were. Um, in small towns and fairly rural areas, having been in uh, college that is, uh, colleges that were in the middle of neighborhoods of, of very active suburbs, and having been to a, a, a university that was in the middle of, of an urban center, um, I mean, all, all of those things are, you know, are, are very important. The most cohesive feel that I ever got was that it was in the schools that were in the suburbs and the schools that were in the small towns. Uh, the one that was in the middle of a city center, um, it, it, it just didn't feel as cohesive. That's mainly because it was it was primarily a commuter college. Most of the people who lived there did not live on campus. There wasn't anywhere to put them right. um, because it was restricted by space. Um, I also tend to prefer the country anyway. Uh, I know Michael's probably going to disagree with me on that one. I actually agree uh, with you because of the space issue. It's, it's hard to have a residential campus in the middle of a city unless you're, the city kind of grew up around it. So I, okay. I, I, I for, for purely practical reasons, it makes more sense to have it in the country. What I don't want is a suburb campus. Right. <laughs> well, what we can, uh, another thing that we can do is to think about uh, the how, how does the layout of a campus enhance community, not detract from it. Um, and, and I thought about the architecture of a monastery, um, which are based the, the basic monastery architecture is square. <laughs> There's the chapel on one side, a refectories on one side, a uh, chapter house on one side, and a dormitory on one side. And in the middle is the cloister and this, this kind of enclosed space where everyone has to walk back and forth, you know, passing each other in these, you know, these same kind of overlapping spaces where community has to happen because uh, you don't scat, everybody doesn't scatter off to their own corner. Um, you know, it's kind of centralized. That would be not, not necessarily that we have to build a monastery, but I, I would like to be mindful at mythical CHU in the way we lay out buildings um, and so forth to create, uh, to try to manage the traffic so that more students are crossing paths with each other, more things are near to each other, so that people from different majors aren't spending all of their time in completely different buildings and, and don't get to see each other, just, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. Moreover, kind let's try a, to have some sort of architectural style for the campus, which is something Christian colleges have historically been rather poor at, with a few, right. with a few notable exceptions. Whitworth, for right. example, you know, Whitworth University is gorgeous. 
but most most Christian colleges don't care much about architectural style. Mm-hmm. It seems for the most part, Milligan does a pretty good job of that as well. Crown is Can nice. Crown is a Jesuit seminary, <laughs> so the Jesuits built it up, and, and we just took it. Yeah, yeah, Milligan's more of a neoclassical rather than a Gothic, but it's still a pretty campus. Right. Lots of columns. Yeah, a place where it looks like learning would happen. Right. I, I believe that the aesthetics of a college really actually does go a long way towards generating the the human atmosphere that you want, I think. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm done. All right. Uh, I'm going to say, and again, I'm, I realize I'm probably going to alienate a lot of my friends who are in various administrative roles, but one of the things that I see as something that a thinking about an ideal university can bring to light is the fact that so many, especially big universities, although the small ones are falling victim to this as well, are starting to imagine themselves as resort towns more than as schools. Mm. Uh, They have to have state-of-the-art fitness facilities, state-of-the-art this, state-of-the-art that. Uh, They basically become self-contained cities. And one of the things, you know, as I said with the spiritual life of the campus, I think that for a school to become its own city is an incredibly bad idea. I think it ought to be integrated with the local community. Uh, And for that reason, you know, I would say that one of the things that universities do right now, and this is the research one and the teaching college, is that they assume that since the faculty is so specialized, either in teaching courses or in doing research, they can demand 60 hours a week from those faculty uh, and therefore, it makes it very difficult for faculty to be human among their students. Uh, so, I mean, one of the things, and I mean, I realize I'm, I'm reaching back to a sort of aristocratic, genteel ideal here, uh, but I'm going to say without apology that the faculty at Christian, human, Christian Humanist University, there we go, uh, should be a leisure class. In other words, they should certainly teach classes. They should certainly teach classes well. Uh, But I think that one of the aims of the university should be to give them a 40-hour week job rather than a 60-hour week job so that they can be human among their students. Uh, And, you know, this is, like I said, the invisible hand mentality of the big college certainly plays into this. But the faculty plus student life plus residential life plus spiritual life mentality at a lot of Christian colleges plays into the same trap, I think. You know, in other words, there are specialists to handle your spiritual needs. Uh, so therefore, we can, you know, make our faculty grade until one in the morning every night. Uh, so, I mean, you know, as far as how that plays out on the ground, I'm going to keep going back to Aristotle, as I always do. Uh, but I think that letting the faculty be human ought to be one of the central goals. Amen. Well, that is it for season four of the Christian Humanist Podcast. If you Woo-hoo! would if you would like to donate the money for us to build this university, we will be happy to do it. You can get in touch with us at the right. Humanist at gmail dot com. Our our web address is Christianhumanist.org. Um from there you can get to an awful lot of uh, different stuff. Normally, this is the time of the if show you're where deciding I... between, uh, you know, buying CNN for, uh, oh goodness, who does common sense, Dan Carlin, or buying Christian Humanist University for us, buy the university. That's right. 
<laughs> Dan Carlin would squander CNN, I'm sure. He really would. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, be tuned. Keep keep your subscription over the summer, and you'll get a couple of new episodes from us. Not at the rate we produce them during the semester, because, uh, hey, we want the time off, too. Uh, in the meantime... This is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be strong. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walk in blues, climb the fence, books and pens, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Friends. Yes, I can tell that we are gonna be friends.